Good morning, church. It is good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Before we jump into it, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you that you sent your Son to purchase us back with his his blood and his body. To pay the debt that we, through our sin, have accumulated against you, Lord. We thank you that he rose three days later. That he defeated death. Defeated the, the hold that sin has upon us. thank you that you give this salvation to us through grace, through your love and your compassion to us. We ask now that you would fill us new with your spirit, so that as we turn to your word, we might be taught Not just in our minds, not just in our thinking, but deep in the fibers of our beings that we would be taught this truth. To your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' precious name. So as our pattern has been going through Philippians 3, we will read the whole chapter and then uh, we will zero in on the last couple verses, finishing up chapter 3 here today. Uh, but more than we have in the past, I'll, I'll cover kind of the whole picture that we see in, in chapter 3. Um, the reason why we've been looking at the whole chapter, or the reason why I've been reading the whole chapter as we've gone through chapter 3, is because this really is a contained thought for Paul. This is one argument that he's he's presenting. Uh, and so I didn't want us to lose focus of that as we kind of took the little bits and pieces. And so today I'm going to try to bring it all together so that we can, we can understand what he's saying in its entirety. So you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 3, chapter 1, or verse 1, excuse me, Philippians 3, 1. Uh, finally, my brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason, for, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. <clears throat> But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature in Christ, let those of us who are mature think this way, excuse me, and if, any, in, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a way to Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that your presence might be felt and known here this morning. That the truth of your Son would radiate from the pages of Scripture. That your Spirit would teach us this truth. Again, not just so that we would know it in our minds, but we would be it in our our bodies. That it would change and transform us as you intend it. It's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, today we're going to look at kind of the whole of chapter 3, but again, particularly uh, the concluding remarks that Paul makes in in his thought. One of the things that we have been doing in in the whole of Philippians, but in particular in chapter 3, it seems to be, at least for me, more more apparent that this is what Paul is doing, is that we've been taking what we would call the doctrine of salvation, we've kind of been looking at particular parts of that that whole. So the doctrine of salvation as a whole, and we're kind of taking particular parts of it. And and I want to try to explain this, because sometimes as I as I think about the things that I said, or I'm listening to 
sermon that I preached or whatever from the previous week. Sometimes I wonder if I make myself clear. So, so I, I want to use a different analogy to hopefully try to explain what I'm, what I'm saying. I've been talking about how there's multiple pieces and parts of the, the, the whole doctrine of salvation. I talk about uh, justification and sanctification and, and glorification and how predominantly as we've been going through Philippians, we, we've been talking mostly about sanctification, the process of change and transformation in our lives. And I've been talking about, and, and, and so let's, let's think about football, football for a minute, right? Football is a sport that's familiar. You don't have to know much about football to, to follow my, my analogy here. But we could talk about football. And, and we all might know, or maybe maybe not, maybe you don't know, but let's explain this for a minute. There's, there's multiple aspects to the sport of football. We could break it down in its most simplest form. You've got, you got your offense and you've got your defense. And really, you can stop there. You've got special teams, but, but it's still offense and defense. And one of the things that we, one of the things that you do as when you're trying to explain something to somebody is you don't, you don't typically take this really big, vast thought and try to cram it into one conversation. So usually when somebody's trying to explain football to somebody, you kind of break it down into pieces and parts. And so I'm going to try to explain football to you. I'm going to start with the offense. Right? I'm going to explain to you that the offense is trying to score the ball, and there's a running game and a passing game, and and, and there's there's offensive line, and there's different positions, and I'm going to go into all these little details and little, little things, whatever. And and while throughout the conversation about about offense and football, I am talking about football. There's also the reality that I'm not talking about football in its entirety, because there's the whole other aspect of the game, the defense, right? And so and so that's a little bit what's happening when when I try to differentiate the different parts of the doctrine of salvation. Yes, we can talk about the, the, the doctrine of justification, and we can talk about it, and yes, we're talking about, we're talking about salvation, but we're not, we're not always looking at the full picture when we kind of zero into those particular pieces and parts. And sometimes what we do is we only talk about one particular aspect of salvation, and we call it all of salvation. And that's, I think that's just an improper way to look at it. And perhaps in, in trying to explain it that way, maybe I've made it more confusing, but hopefully not. Hopefully I, hopefully that helps a little bit. So when we talk about these different pieces and parts, we talk about these different aspects of what we mean when we talk about salvation. Again, justification and sanctification and, and glorification. We're not, we're not drawing this, this very clear line in the sand where, where justification and sanctification don't have any, any connection. There's no overlap. There, there's this there's this kind of blending together in the necessity you can't have you can't have football without both offense and defense you can't have salvation without justification and sanctification and glorification again I hope that makes sense the reason why I bring this up because I think what Paul is doing in chapter three is he's kind of starting at the beginning he's going to work his way through kind of a doctrine of salvation as a as a whole. I think we do kind of see all three parts in chapter 3 of, of salvation. So Paul starts with a word of warning. He starts with a word of warning in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write to you the same thing that I've written before. A little bit of a paraphrase there. I've, I've suggested throughout, it, throughout our study through Philippians 3 that this is likely referring to the letter to the Galatians 
where in the letter to the Galatians and in chapter 3, Paul warns against the circumcision group. And what the circumcision group was doing is saying that you have to first be Jewish before you can be Christian. In essence, what they're saying is it's Jesus plus this physical act, this physical thing you must first do before you can receive Christ as your Savior. And I think what Paul then does, he kind of broadens it out a little bit. He expands it to not just not just the need for a physical circumcision, but, but, the, but the idea that we look at what we're doing in the flesh and we think that it contributes to the work of justification. And this is where I think Paul kind of, without, without being very straightforward in that, he, he, he does kind of zero in on the idea of justification, the point in which we are set right in God's eyes. He talks about how, how he himself, he, he, he says, he challenges his, his, his audience. He says, look, you might, you might think you have confidence in your flesh, uh, but I have more. You might think that you're a good enough person, I think is what Paul is trying to say. You might be a good person. You might, you might outweigh your bad activities with your good activities. It might be, you know, the scale might be tipped in your, in your favor. You think it's tipped in your favor. You might, you might have a lot of good things going for you. You feed the poor. You've, you've been a part of the church your whole life. You've got all these good things. Paul's like, Paul's like, it's nice. It's wonderful. But I have more to boast in. And, and while we don't necessarily feel the weight of what Paul is saying in his list, right, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel in, in verse 5, and, uh, 5, 6, and 7, or 5 and 6, excuse me, his list doesn't necessarily bear weight for us. It did for the first century audience. This is an impressive list. Paul kind of puts anybody to shame on what he brings to the table as far as his goodness or or his perceived goodness. Paul says, all of this is nothing. All of this is nothing. We are not justified. Scripture teaches us that we are not justified by mostly Jesus and some of us. It is not a 90-10 split. It is all of Christ. And Paul teaches us in chapter 3 here, he says, he says, look, all of what I have, all of the things that I could point to as the goodness of who I am or, or the, the righteousness that I have accumulated over my life or whatever you want to say, whatever, whatever status symbol you want to put on it, it doesn't matter. All of it is garbage. He says, in fact, we use the word rubbish in the ESV. The ESV says rubbish, but it's, it, the Greek is actually, it's dung. It has no value, Paul says. All that I am, all that I've done, all the things that I could count as my goodness, and all the, all the things that I could, I could possibly leverage against God, because that's essentially what we do when we try to say that I'm good enough for God to save me, is we think that we can leverage God into redeeming me. But Scripture teaches us is that left to ourselves, we have nothing to offer God. And for Paul, this is always where he starts when he talks about salvation. He always starts by teaching or showing that, that, that no matter what I do, no matter what I accomplish in life, whatever, whatever good deeds I think that I'm accruing in my favor, all of them never have any value in relation to my salvation. It's always 
always only Christ that saves us, that justifies us in God's sight. It's, it's His blood, His body, and Paul says, His righteousness bestowed upon me. It is not my work. It is Christ. And, and I think what Paul does, and the reason why Paul always starts here, is that he, he, is, he, is, he is putting up this wall. Not a fence, not a, not, a, not, a, not a suggestion. It is a wall that says, there is nothing of me in salvation. And I think it's important that we recognize this, especially in our conversation about justification. It's all of Christ and His righteousness. But it would be a misunderstanding to think that that salvation stops at justification. It's also it's the same thing that I was talking about a couple weeks ago when I said uh, it's a misunderstanding to think that 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 Christ's work on the cross stops at the cross. Yes, it's wonderful that Christ died for us and paid the debt that we have accumulated. But Jesus' resurrection is what frees us, the defeat of death. When, when Christ leaves the tomb, when Christ leaves the, 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 the punishment for sin, when Christ defeats death, he frees those that he has saved to, to now be able to live a different life. And so we go from, from being justified in the sight of God, being set right because of the blood and the work of Jesus, to now being able to live our lives in response. And so Paul shifts, and he largely shifts in, in verse 9. He shifts from talking kind of about justification. Again, it's, it's kind of a blurred line. It's not a, a, a sharp line between justification and, and, and sanctification. But he says that I may know the power, I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection is the power to change. The power to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, Romans 12. All that we have now as believers, all that happens is because of the power of Christ in, in, in his resurrection. And Paul says, because Christ, because Christ has bestowed upon me righteousness, because Christ has bestowed upon me salvation, I now seek to make that salvation, make that righteousness my own. And again, it's very important that we understand that what Paul is saying here is that it's not that in order for me to be completely saved, I must make it my own. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying because it has been given to me, because of the grace of God poured out upon me, I now make it my own or seek to make it my own. As I think Paul makes it fairly clear. He says, I've not already obtained this. He says, I press on to make it my own. And he says, I don't consider that I have made it my own. So three times Paul says, I haven't made the righteousness given to me my own, but I seek it. I, I, I yearn after it. And the most important verse, certainly in chapter 3, but, but probably in, in it. In, in Philippians is, is verse 12 when he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because God's righteousness has been bestowed upon me 
through the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, I seek, I strive, I strain, I, I, I endeavor to make that righteousness mine. Meaning that my actions now change. My life is now marked different because of the work of Christ. See, there's, there's, two, there's two mistakes, predominant mistakes that we make with salvation. The one is, it's 90% Jesus, 10% me. The one is, my works will save me, right? But the other, when we get that first one right, it's all Christ, it's 100% His work and none of my work. The other thing that we do in error is that we think because my works don't matter in relation to my justification, my, my action, my life, my works don't matter. But that misunderstands salvation entirely. Because Christ did not save us to just be ourselves. Christ saved us to be His. He saved us to be transformed. He saved us so that we would go from, from justification to glorification. Glorification being when we enter into the presence of God, our bodies are made new. We no longer are bound to sin and death. We're no longer bound to the flesh of sin that dwells upon us. This is what's so, so magnificent about verse 21 when, when, when Paul says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies that are no longer bound to sin and death. So we go from here to there. We go from earth we go from justification to glorification. And in the middle of this, God, God saves us to be transformed. Sanctification. And so, because Christ's righteousness has been bestowed upon me, I seek to make it my own. It's wonderful, right? Paul tells us earlier that, that it's, it's God's will that works in me. It's God's work that's working in me. So again, he doesn't leave us abandoned. He gives us his spirit. So we strain on towards the goal. And so we get to verse 15. I want to make sure that, that, I, that, that, that we, what we've seen up until verse 14 and 1 to 14. Here's what I think we see. Paul says, we are justified by the work of Christ and his work alone. His righteousness has been given to me by the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And because of that, I seek to make that righteousness my righteousness. I seek to change my life, to change my actions. It's my, my willful endeavor to be a better person. I think that's what Paul is showing us. And then Paul says something that I don't think he says or I don't think he does anywhere else in Scripture. Paul is, by, by his, his actions, Paul is, by, by his writing, he's a, a rhetorician. Okay? He writes and speaks and teaches in what we call classical Greek rhetoric, which is the art of convincing somebody else. Paul, if, if probably, in, if he weren't a believer, if he weren't a follower of, of Christ, he probably would have been a lawyer. A lawyer's job is not to tell you something, right? That's actually, a lawyer is never actually allowed to tell you what you're supposed to believe. A lawyer is supposed to convince you of something, which is what Paul does everywhere else in his writings. 
This is, I think, the only, as far as I can remember, the only time Paul does this. What Paul has been doing in chapter 3 is he's been giving himself as an example, showing what his belief is, and then he says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. He is, in, in some sense, he has dispensed the art of convincing. Now, I think he's doing some things in chapter 3 that are are rhetoric or convincing actions. He is making a case. But here he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So, so here's what he's saying. If you've been a Christian for any length of time or some length of time, if you have grown in Christ, here is what you should believe. You contribute nothing to salvation and be, to justification. And because Christ has bestowed upon you righteousness, you are to seek to make it your own. Christ, Paul says, this is how you should think. I think that's astounding. We are so used to, especially in our culture, we are so used to getting to a point where we have convinced ourselves of what truth is. Right? We live in a culture that, that shouts, and shout is not even a strong enough word, shouts that your truth is truth. I think what Paul is doing here is he's going, it's not my truth. It's God's. Right? It's the, it's, we, we are experiencing in our culture today, I, I think the most vivid expression of the first sin. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and they're told, they're, they're told by God, you, can, you have everything. Everything is yours. You have dominion over the land. You have dominion over the plants. You have dominion over the animals. You have dominion over everything. The only thing that is mine and mine alone, God says, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which is, by the way, symbolic of God's, of God's right and rule over truth. Over what is right and over what is wrong. And Satan tells Eve, whenever she's sitting there looking at the tree, he says, you're not going to surely die. You will become like God. Because this is what we think, this is what it is to be God, to possess truth. And Paul here, he says, I'm not going to convince you of this because this is God's truth. It's his work that saves you. It's his action that saves you. And it's your response in worship, in service, whatever terminology you want to put in that, to make it your own. Paul doesn't convince us here. He simply tells us what truth is. He expresses to us what truth is. And then he doubles down on it, I think. He says, let, us, let those of us who are mature, and mature think this way. And he says, and, and, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So if you're having a hard time believing what Paul has just said, and you earnestly seek to know truth, God will reveal to you where you were wrong and correct you. I think that's amazing. You know, because sometimes, sometimes as we think about, okay, where are we at? Right? We're in a... We're in a church, and, and, and we're one of, what, a billion churches on earth? It's an exaggeration, obviously. We all have slightly different things, and it can sometimes get really really frustrating. How we believe, certainly, you know, different, uh, all this kind of... 
what Paul is saying here, I think what Paul is saying here is, is, is that if you are seeking the Lord, if you're seeking to know what truth is, and you get it wrong, God will correct you. But we do have to seek it. It's just those of us who are mature think this way, and if and in, if, and if in anything, apparently that's a tongue twister, you think otherwise God will reveal that also to you. Only let those... Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I think he goes back to what he was just saying. We hold true to what we have already received, what we've already seen change in our lives, the change that is beginning at the point of justification up until this point. We hold true to what God has already done in us. And Paul says something again that is just, I think it's it's hard. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, we live in a world that shouts that there is no such thing as truth beyond me. Right? This is what's so difficult. It's what's so difficult when trying to explain God to other people in, in our particular culture. It's because what we believe and what we say is that God is truth in himself. But what our world says is almost the complete opposite. God should rather submit to what my truth is. As long as my truth is my truth and you can't say anything about it. Which doesn't it, I mean logically doesn't this dispel all thought of truth? Doesn't truth have to be outside of those who follow, follow it? Because if my truth is different than your truth, whose truth is right and truth then becomes nothing. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Paul, Paul believes that what he is doing is right. Not only does he believe that what he is doing or what he is saying, not only does he believe that it's right, he's so confident in it. He's saying, Follow me. And in just one second, he's going to say, and not them. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is not saying, I am perfect, so therefore you should follow me. Right? He's just gone to great lengths three different times to say, I have not already obtained the righteousness that Christ has given me. We, the, the title of the last two sermons in Philippians was, Already and not yet. We already possess the justifying work of Christ on the cross and we are righteous in God's eyes, but we have not yet attained it in the way that God desires and demands us to attain it. Paul says, this is what I seek. This is what I strain for. This is what I'm desiring. This is what, what I'm after. No, I have not made it, but join in imitating me. This is truth and follow my example. I can honestly say, in all the years I've been in the church, that I don't know if I've ever heard a pastor say to his congregation, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And let me tell you why. Because that is the most terrifyingly arrogant thing that I think I could actually say to you. Because I look at myself, and when Paul says I've not made it, I don't, I don't already have it. 
I look at Paul and I go, well, you kind of do. And I certainly don't. And yet Paul tells us that not only are we supposed to imitate Paul, but we're supposed to imitate those people who get it. And as your pastor, I probably should get it. And so it's terrifying for me to think that that perhaps you're supposed to look you're supposed to look to me as 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 a, as an example. And you're supposed to be looking at each other's as as an example to follow. Those who've not who've not mastered righteousness, but those who are earnestly seeking righteousness. I said a couple weeks ago that 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 the predominant place, or the primary place that sanctification happens is in the church. I think I need to double down on that today. I think, yes, the, pr- the principal place where we as believers are changed and transformed is in the midst of the body of believers. And I can go as far to say, outside of special, unique circumstances, Special unique circumstances meaning maybe I'm stranded on a desert island and the only thing I have is my Bible. Or the church has completely abandoned truth and God is going to raise up particular leaders like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, so on and so forth, the the men of the Reformation. Outside of particular special circumstances, the, the place that we turn to to be changed and transformed And listen to the end of this statement. It's not the Bible, but it's the church. Yes, everything that we do in the church is the word of God. It is its final authority. It is the place that we learn and know and understand truth. But left to myself, I can have the Bible and left to myself, I can corrupt the Bible very, very easily. But in the midst of the body of believers, it becomes much more difficult. Possible, but much more difficult. And I think as I look at examples like Paul, and not only Paul, but Paul has said in chapter 2, he says, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to think of others more significant than ourselves. Hey, by the way, look at the example of Jesus, who who even though he had equality with God, didn't, didn't count that as, as something to be held. And, 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 and instead, he humbled himself even to the point of death. This is how we should act with each other. Paul says, use Christ as the example. Or Timothy and Epaphroditus and in, the, in chapter two, same thing. Look to these two men who didn't look at their didn't look at their act at their action as some small small thing, but 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 rather as the service to God in the work of the ministry. And so imitate them, or here imitate me, Paul says. But we can't actually imitate each other. We can't actually imitate each other if we abandon the value that church has. It's terrifying to think that you should look to me. And follow my example. This is where we grow. This is the place we are supposed to be so that transformation can happen. And then he gives us a counterexample, I think, in verse 18. Verse verse 18 and 19. He says, for many of whom... Of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You can't be much further away from Christ than as an enemy. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their own shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. 
again, I think this is the other side. This is the uh, we don't contribute to justification, but that doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. For many, we corrupt what it means to have faith in Christ, to have faith in His work and His death and in His resurrection. And we say, we say that my actions don't matter. Paul says, no, your actions most certainly matter because if your actions aren't in line with what Scripture teaches, then have you really been? Have you, have you really been in the presence of God? Right? If we believe that the Spirit of God dwells in me, do I really think that God's not going to affect me? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables, enables him even to subject all things. To himself. We are not meant to be left here as we are. We are not meant to be left here as we are. Christ, his work has, has saved us to move us from our sinful and dead life to be alive with the Father. Max nailed it this morning in communion. He said that God, God created us, right, to be with him. But our sinfulness drives us away from it. Both, both because God is too righteous to, to be near our sinfulness and because we, we flee from him because of our sinfulness, right? Adam and Eve, they're hiding in the Garden of Eden because they know their sin. They fear his response. So we place our trust, our hope, in this last verse. Who, like Paul says earlier, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Because he who began a good work in you has the power is the power to subject all things, even you, unto himself. Let's pray. Lord, teach us your goodness. Help us to know the truth of your word. Help us know that we have not just been paid for, but we have been free. Help us to be bold in stepping into that freedom. To leave sin behind us. To cling to the will that you have bestowed in us to be yours, to be changed. Help us to cling to the power of your resurrection. Help us to walk in faith, knowing that because, because you have made us yours, we can now make what you have made ours. 
Lord. It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus.